We hope you like this Resurrection Oakland Church podcast. Unauthorized use of any part of this copyrighted material for redistribution or duplication is not permitted without prior consent from Resurrection Oakland Church. To learn more about our church and its charity and mission work in and around Oakland, California, please visit our website at www.resoakland.com. A reading from Mark 10. And as he was setting out on his journey, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud. Honor your father and mother. And he said to him, Teacher, all these I have kept from my youth. And Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, You lack one thing. Go, sell all that you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. And Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, How difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were amazed at his words. But Jesus said to them again, Children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And they were exceedingly astonished and said to him, Then who can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, With man... It is impossible, but not with God, for all things are possible with God. Peter began to say to him, See, we have left everything and followed you. Jesus said, Truly, I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions, and in the age to come, eternal life. But many who are first will be last, and the last first. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You can take your seats. Let's take just a moment to pray together. Gracious God, I pray that you would help us now Uh, to believe that we are in this room this morning because you brought us here. Uh, Whether this is something we do every week, whether this is our first time in church in a long time, whether this is our very first time ever, whether we come into this room with all sorts of doubts and questions that these things are true, wherever we find ourselves, would you help us to believe that the reason we are here right now is because you have brought us here? And you have things that you want to say to us. You want to speak into our lives. Uh, That you have words of truth and beauty and life and goodness and joy that you want us to hear. I mean, words that that you alone can speak to us. And so I pray now that, um, Holy Spirit, you would use my feeble attempts as we look at this passage together. Uh, to hear from you and to be changed by you. And we pray all this in Christ's name. Amen. 
Good morning. Uh, my name is Brent, and I'm one of the pastors here. And uh, if this is your very first time visiting, we're so glad you're here today. Hope to get to meet you after the service. Hopefully, you'll come to the newcomer lunch. Um, if you are new, we have been working our way through a series in the Gospel of Mark, and we've been talking about the way of Jesus. And what we've been seeing in this series is how following Jesus affects every, every part of our lives. Every part. Jesus leaves no part untouched. He, he works his way into every nook and cranny of our life. And uh, it's kind of like, have you ever um, noticed cranberries on the juice aisle? Like cranberries, they work their way into every other kind of juice. Like literally, there's cranberry lemonade and cranberry strawberry and cranberry pineapple and cranberry grapefruit. Cranberries work their way into every other kind of juice. And that's how Jesus is. Jesus is like cranberries. Okay, this is, this is never going to be quoted ever again. Uh, this is coming out way worse than I thought it would in my head. Um, uh, when you follow Jesus, he doesn't just become another part of your life. He, he, he works his way into every part of your life. Your work and your marriage and your singleness, and your sexuality, and who you forgive, and how you treat your neighbor, and how you navigate suffering. And in the coming weeks, this is a little bit, little teaser, we're going to see how Jesus works his way into our politics, and how he works his way into the way that we think about justice. There is no part of our lives that Jesus doesn't touch including our money, which is what today's sermon is on. And I can just feel the enthusiasm in this room right now. Um, I had to preach a sermon on money when we were, had virtual-only recordings, and uh, that's, that's a really kind of crappy thing to do as a pastor, because you just know, like, it's easy for people to just, they could just turn off their screen, but, you know, and just walk away, because sermons on money are not really easy to listen to. Um, but if you get up and walk out, we're all going to see it. So you don't want to do that right now. It'd be awkward for, for you and me and for all of us. Um, uh, you know, we don't like listening to sermons on money. And if I'm honest with you, I don't like preaching sermons on money. Uh, the reason I don't like preaching sermons on money is not because I'm afraid to say hard things in a sermon. Um, the reason I don't like preaching sermons on money is because I have had to spend all week personally wrestling with what Jesus says about money. And I'm just going to be very honest with you. I don't like all of it. Jesus says some really hard things about money. And if you don't think that Jesus says hard things about money, then you are simply not listening to him. He says a lot of hard things, and he talks about money all the time. Did you know that Jesus, he basically talks about money more than he talks about anything else. Jesus talks about money ten times more than he talks about sex. And the question is, why does Jesus talk about money so much? And let me just offer two suggestions here. Here's the first. Jesus talks about money not because he wants something from you, but because he wants something for you. And some of us in this room, we get really nervous when pastors start preaching sermons on money because they think, oh, they're trying to get something from me. 
My hope for us this morning is that you lead this room feeling like this is not a sermon that's trying to get something from you, but it's actually trying to give something to you. Because this is always the way that Jesus' words come to us, even when they're hard, even when we don't like them, even when they kind of rub against us. They are always for our good. Here's the second suggestion I would make. Jesus talks about money all the time because all of us in this room have work to do. Now, let me tell you one of the things I love about our church is that there are people in this room who have incredible wealth, And there are people in this room who have incredible need. There is significant socioeconomic diversity in this church. And the church ought to be that way. Because we're not not united by a common class or a common color or a common culture. No, we are bound together by Jesus. And when that happens, when that actually is doing its work, what you find is a room full of people who are very, very different in every way, including... Money, And you see, it is so easy, I just want you to hear this, it's so easy to come to this passage and think that this is just for some people in this room. Um, Dale Bruner, who's a New Testament commentator, he, he writes this about this passage. He says, wealth is relative. Almost all who enter third world countries, for example, find themselves millionaires the moment their feet touch the tarmac. When we hear Jesus' words on wealth, we should not look sideways at the wealthy in our congregation. We should look globally at the great poor world and then look inwardly at ourselves. You see, the wrong way to read this passage is to just point the finger at this rich man or rich people. And the right way to read it is to look in the mirror and to ask this question, God, what are you trying to teach me? about my relationship with money and possessions. And let me tell you, that is a very important question to ask because it is one of the biggest indicators to just how much Jesus has worked his way into your money and into your life. So let's talk about money. Um, If you're not familiar with this story, uh, it's a very famous story. It's known as the story of the rich young ruler This man comes to Jesus and asks him a very big question. How do I get eternal life? And Jesus, they have this very interesting conversation that we're going to look at in just a moment. But in verse 23, this is where I want to start this morning. Jesus says something very shocking in this passage. He says how hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. And then he says, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. Now this is, Jesus uses this metaphor And you're like, what's the meaning of this? Well, it's a metaphor of impossibility. See, a camel was the largest land animal in the Mediterranean, in the ancient Mediterranean world. And a needle was one of the smallest objects that you could find. Jesus is taking one of the biggest things and one of the smallest things, and he is saying you cannot fit a camel through the eye of a needle. It is impossible. Now, what is Jesus doing here? Some would say, well, you know, Jesus is just hating on rich people. You know, and uh, he's just saying, you know, all rich people are bad and they're going to hell and all poor people are good and they're going to heaven. The problem with this is that it squares with nothing else the Bible says about money. The Bible never says that money is inherently sinful. 
It never says that it is inherently sinful to be wealthy. There were all sorts of wealthy people in the Bible. Abraham was wealthy. Isaac was wealthy. David was wealthy. And guess what? God blessed them. And he loved them. And he used them. Proverbs talks a ton about money. And one of the things that Proverbs says about money is that it is good to work, it is good to earn money, and that it's even good to enjoy it. So what is Jesus doing? Why does he seem to be singling out the rich in this passage? Well, notice how the disciples respond in verse 26. It says that the disciples... Let me read off here. I've got a different, different translation. All right. Verse 26... It says that the disciples were exceedingly astonished, and they said to them, who then can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, with man this, it is impossible, but not with God, for all things are possible with God. I want you to notice something. Jesus does not say, with rich people, this is impossible. Jesus says, with all people, this is impossible but not with God. Do you know what he's talking about? He's talking about salvation. He's saying it's impossible for anyone to be made right with God apart from God intervening. Uh, Ephesians 2, chapter chapter 2, verse 7 says it this way. God, who is rich in mercy, listen to this, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in our transgressions. Salvation is not bad people become better people. It's not bad people become good people. Salvation is people who are spiritually dead are made alive. And you know what that's called? That's called a miracle. And you see, all salvation, anyone who is a Christian, it is a miracle, whether you are rich or poor. But if you are rich... And I think this is the point that Jesus is getting at. If you are rich, the thing that is impossible for all of us is only made harder by money. Let me say it this way. Jesus is not saying that it is wrong to be rich. But he is saying it is dangerous to be rich. Money is dangerous for all sorts of reasons. But let me give you just a couple this morning. Here's the first. Money is dangerous because it can blind you to your true spiritual state. Look at the question that Jesus asked, or that this man asked Jesus in verse 17. He says, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? That is what you call a flawed question. And and I want you to know, this is actually the question that every other religion starts with. Every other religion starts with the question of what must I do to earn God's love and acceptance? What are the rules? What are the principles? What are the morals? What are the values? Christianity is entirely different. You don't become a Christian by doing anything. You become a Christian by simply receiving what God has done for you in the person and work of Jesus Christ. It's not your efforts for him that make you acceptable to God, but it is his efforts for you. And you know what that's called? That is called 
grace. And you see, you can only receive God's grace to the extent that you know you need God's grace. To the extent that you know your need for it. And Jesus says it this way in the Sermon on the Mount. He says, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And to be poor in spirit means to admit that your true spiritual state before God is one of moral and spiritual bankruptcy. You are, you have no resources on your own. You are dead. It's to come to God saying, nothing in me merits your love and grace. In fact, it's just the opposite. Now, notice what happens after the rich young ruler asks this question. Uh, Jesus says to him, he says, uh, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud, honor your father and mother. You know what Jesus is doing here? He is quoting the second half of the Ten Commandments. And, and, and this, 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 then look what the rich young ruler says. He says, he said, he said to him, teacher, all these I have kept from my youth. Really? Is that so? See, one of the things that's interesting about the Sermon on the Mount is that right after Jesus says, blessed are the poor in spirit, he starts unpacking the Ten Commandments. He says, well, you've, you've heard that it was said, do not murder. But I tell you that if you have anger in your heart towards a brother or sister, you've committed murder. He says, you've heard that it was said, you know, in the, in the Ten Commandments, do not commit adultery. But I tell you that if you have lusted after anyone, then you have committed adultery in your heart. And you see, here's the deal. This rich young ruler, he knows the commandments, but he doesn't know himself. He doesn't know his own heart. He doesn't know his own moral and spiritual bankruptcy. And I think what Jesus is doing, at, is doing here is that he is getting at a correlation. A correlation between outward wealth and inner poverty. And the correlation is this. The more you are rich in money, the harder it is to be poor in spirit. Let me say that again. The, the more you are rich in money, the harder it is to be poor in spirit. The harder it is to know your true spiritual state before God. The harder it is to see your need for God's grace. And I think I can actually prove this to you. Um, Christianity is on the decline in the Bay Area. I don't know if you've noticed this. It's not cool to be a Christian in the Bay Area. There's no social advantage to telling people that you're a Christian here. And why is that? Well, I think what we assume, many people assume, is that the reason for that is because, you know, we're Bay Area people. We're West Coast. We're, 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 we're sophisticated, like faith and God and religion. That stuff is like so last century. But what if the reason that Christianity is on the decline here is not because we are so sophisticated, but because we're so successful. 
we live in and we are surrounded by some of the wealthiest zip codes in this country. I mean, does, wouldn't that seem to make sense of why Christianity is not cool here? Of why it's on the decline? If what Jesus is saying is true, that the more you, the more you have going for you in life, the harder it is to see your need for God. And that doesn't make sense of why Christianity is on the decline. Here, in a place where we have so much, but it is exploding all over the world, where people have way less than we do. Places like South America, places like Africa, places like China. It's dangerous. It blinds you to your true spiritual state. Here's the second danger. Money lies to you. And the lie is very simple. Here it is. The more money you have, the happier you will be. Um, Laurie Santos is a professor of psychology at Yale University. And she's done all this research on factors that lead to human happiness. What is it that makes people happy? And uh, this is what she says in her research. She says, the question is, Why are we so unhappy? And the answer is, it's a problem of psychology. Our minds are lying to us about the kinds of things that make us happy. We are seeking out the wrong kinds of stuff. And the first thing that she, the first example that she gives is money. She says, we think the more that we have, the happier we'll be. And and then she, she cites, and there's all sorts of studies you can go read about this, but Researchers have done a lot of research on the correlation between how much money you make and how happy you are. The question they're trying to figure out is, if you make more money, are you happier? And the answer is actually yes, but only to a point. And here's what what the data shows. That if you're really, really poor, it's hard to be happy. Life is really hard. And so the more that your income goes up, yes, your happiness increases. But that, that going up of your happiness stops at a point. You know what the point is? $75,000. Here's what the research shows. If you make $75,000, if they were to double, triple, or even quadruple your income, you would not be happier. And you say, that's not true. Because you believe the lie. That's the point. You know, John Rockefeller, who is a very wealthy oil tycoon in the early 19th century, he was the first billionaire. And he was asked in the middle of his career, after he'd kind of already made a huge fortune, he was asked this question, how much money is enough money? And you know what he said? Just a little bit more. And see, that's the lie. And the question is, is why is that lie so dangerous? What's so dangerous about it? Well, here's here's the danger. The danger is that money and the pursuit of it can distract you from the things that really matter in life. We think a lot about money. We spend a lot of time trying to make money and spend money and save money, and we think about it all the time. But you know what people never talk about at funerals? They never talk about money. They never talk about somebody's money. I was at a funeral this last week. They don't talk about money. They don't talk about bank accounts. 
You know what they talk about? They talk about that person's relationships and their integrity and the way they cared for others and the kind of person they were and the kind of friend they were and the kind of neighbor they were and the kind of spouse they were and the kind of mom or dad they were. I mean, we spend so much time thinking about money and yet when we get to the end, no one is talking about money. It distracts us from the things that really matter in life, from other people, from serving others, from caring about our city, from building community and, and, in the church, and from investing in relationships, and from, from asking ourselves questions like, what is life really about? You know, John Rockefeller, when he got to the end of his life, um, the same guy who said just a little bit more, he was asked this question. He was asked, what is the one thing that you wish you knew when you were younger that would have helped you? And this is what he said. He said that when you get to the top, there's nothing there. We spend our lives thinking, if only I could get just a little bit more. And let me tell you, I've been a pastor for almost 20 years now. And I've seen this do incredible destruction and damage in people's lives. You can prioritize career and success and getting to the top, and all along the way, you are neglecting friendships, spouses, children. It lies to you. Here's here's the last thing that's dangerous about money. It gives you the illusion of safety. Proverbs 11, verse 4 says this, says, wealth is worthless in the day of wrath. Wealth is worthless in the day of wrath. Now, when we hear day of wrath, maybe you think, oh, that's like judgment day, the day before we, the day we stand before God. And it can mean that, but, but wrath can also mean the trouble that awaits you in this life. You see, what money does is it gives you the illusion that you are in control. That you are safe, that you're secure, and that your life is buffered from suffering, and that bad things are not coming your way. And I don't mean to be morbid this morning, but bad things are coming your way. Heartbreak. Grief. Sickness, tragedy, death. Money cannot protect you from these things, and it cannot help you when they come. Wealth is worthless in the day of wrath. And that is not simply meant to be a warning, but it is actually meant to be an invitation. It's meant to be an invitation to cultivate a life with God now that can sustain you when those things come then. It's an invitation to begin right now to break the power that money has over your life. And you see, we all want that, and we all need that, and the question, of course, is, well, how do you get it? And before we get to that, I want to just, a quick aside here, before we get to the how do you break the power of money in your life, First, we need to understand why 
Money has this kind of power over our lives. We've talked about the danger of it. It can blind you, it lies to you, distracts you from the things that really matter in life. It can't protect you from suffering. But why, why does money have this kind of power over us? All right, let's go back to the text here for just a minute. Look at verse 20. Uh, teacher, all these I have kept from my youth. And Jesus, looking at him, loved him. And he said to him, you lack one thing. Go sell all that you have and give to the poor. And you will have treasure in heaven. And come follow me. So let's talk about this command for just a moment. Jesus says, sell everything you have and give it to the poor. And some of you are saying, am I supposed to do that? Maybe and maybe not. And here's why I say that. This is the only place in the Gospels that Jesus says this. Do you know this? He doesn't say this to anyone else. He doesn't say it to anyone else. This is the only place. He, he, in, in Luke chapter 19, in fact, here's a great kind of like uh, case to compare it to. In Luke 19, there's this guy named Zacchaeus. He's a tax collector. He's very wealthy. And he meets Jesus and he says, Jesus, I'm going to give away 50% of what I have to the poor. And you know what Jesus says? Awesome. Wonderful. So why does Jesus in this moment, why is he saying to this man, sell everything that you have, give it all away? Well, think of it this way. This man has just said to Jesus, I've followed all the commandments. And Jesus says, okay, there's one more. There's one more. I want you to imagine your life without money. That's what he's saying to this man. No inheritance, no mansions, no 401k, no safety net. It's all gone. All you have is me. Can you live like that? Can you lose it all to follow me? And how does the rich young ruler respond to this? Look at the text. Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. He went away sad. He went away sorrowful. The, the, literally, the word means he went away deeply grieved. Now, here's what's so interesting. This same word is used to describe Jesus the night before his death in the Garden of Gethsemane. Jesus was sorrowful. Jesus was deeply grieved. Why was Jesus deeply grieved in the garden? It was because he was having to imagine a similar situation for himself as the one he had told the rich young ruler to imagine for himself. Jesus was having to imagine himself losing something. What did Jesus lose when he went to the cross? He lost God the Father. See, Jesus could not, he could not bear the thought of life without the Father, but the rich young ruler couldn't bear the thought of life without money. And so when Jesus called him to give it all away, he was sorrowful. He was sorrowful because his money was for him what the Father was for Jesus. And so when the rich young ruler says to Jesus, I have kept 
all the commandments, Jesus looks at him and he basically says, not only have you not kept the second half of the commandments, you haven't even kept the first commandment. What's the first commandment? You shall have no other gods before me. Love me above everything else. And this man didn't. You know what he loved more than God? He loved his money. His money was the thing that he could not imagine life without. And that's why Jesus calls him to give it all away. And this explains why money has such power over us. It's not wrong to have money. Money is a gift from God. The problem is that money can become your God. It can become the thing that you locate your joy and your identity and your sense of meaning and worth and purpose in. And when that happens, your money has incredible power over you. Look at, look at this in verse 22. It says that disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. He had great possessions. The reality is, is that his great possessions had him. He did not have control over his money and stuff. It had control over him. He didn't manage his money. His money managed him. And I want to give you just, I want to ask you a couple questions this morning to see if this might be the case for you and me. Here are the questions. Can you give large amounts of money away? Or can you only give small amounts? Or can you give no amount? Here's another question. Do you think about giving in terms of how much you have to give or how much you can give? Does your money flow effortlessly to things that benefit you and your family while it flows very reluctantly to others and to the work of God's kingdom? When you see people who have more than you, are you envious and jealous and maybe even spiteful? Do you tend to focus on the things that you have instead of the things that you don't have, always thinking that if you had more, then you would be happy? If you have answered yes to any of these questions, you are in good company. <laughs> and you're being honest. Because this is all of us. This is all of us. So where do we go from here? I mean, we need some good news. This has been kind of a heavy sermon. Not, not a lot of laughter this morning. I'm feeling, feeling it. All right. Um, whenever people aren't laughing, you just make a joke about them not laughing, and then it gets people laughing. And Yeah, anyways, okay. So what's the good news? The good news is you don't have to live under the power of money. You can actually break it in your life. And the question is how, and I'm going to just give you four very, very practical steps in that, and then we're going to be done. Here's the first. How do you break the power of money in your life? Number one, assume the worst. <laughs> assume the worst. And here's what I mean by that. I mean, assume that you are no different than the man in this story, whether you have lots of money or whether you have little money. Assume that you are no different. Start with the assumption that money has you under its power and that it is too important to you. You know, in Luke 12, Jesus says something really interesting. He says, watch out, be on your guard for greed. You know, Jesus doesn't talk that way about any other sin. He doesn't say, watch out for adultery. 
Watch out for stealing. Watch out for murder. You know why? Because these things are all obvious. You know when you're doing them, right? Greed is much more subtle. We don't know when we're doing it. I mean, when is the last time you heard someone say, you know, I've been thinking, and I really, I really do spend too much money on myself. See, greed sneaks up on you. It's subtle, and so to break its power, you have to start with the assumption that you are doing it. You have to start with the assumption that you don't need as much as you think you need, and you have to start with the assumption that you can actually give away more than you think you can. Here's a great question to ask yourself. If Jesus were you, if he lived in this time and in this place, and he had your income, how would he spend his money? How would he give it away? And you have to start with the assumption that the answer to that question is, is that it's something very different from what you're doing now. Assume the worst. Here's the second thing. Invite others in. Please do not miss the fact that at the end of this whole conversation on money, that Jesus is talking with the disciples together. Now, Jesus talked to them so much about money. Think about how much they must have talked about money amongst one another. See, to break the power of money in your life, you can't do it alone. You, you, need, you need to make a plan with your money. How, how, how much are you going to give away? How are you going to spend it? And who are you going to give it to? How are you going to use it for the poor and to give to the church and to the work of God's kingdom? You've got to make a plan, and then you have to share that plan with others. You need to invite others in and ask them to keep you accountable. Now, this is so countercultural. Like, we are way more comfortable talking about everything else than our money. We will talk about politics. We will talk about sex. We'll talk about everything but money. And you see, what, to, to really do this, you've got to do it with others. This is a very radical thing. It's very countercultural. Who have you given access into this part of your life? Who have you given permission to ask you hard questions about what you're doing with your money and to pray for you and to encourage you and to hold you accountable? You can't do it alone. You've got to invite others in. Here's the third thing. Practice the spiritual discipline of gratitude. We did a whole sermon series back last summer on the spiritual disciplines. One that we did not get to talk about that I wish we had is gratitude. Now, we don't typically think of gratitude as a spiritual discipline, but it is one. I want you to look at what Jesus says at the very end of this passage. He says in verse 29, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now and this time houses and brothers and sisters and mothers, children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come eternal life. Now, here is what Jesus is saying. Jesus says, when you are a Christian, you don't just get great things in the next life. You get great things in this life. No matter how much you give to God, God will always give more to you, not just in the future, but in the present. And this is why we need to learn how to cultivate the practice 
of gratitude because we spend so much time focusing on the things that we don't have instead of being grateful for the things that we do have. And gratitude helps you break the power of money in your life because it trains your heart to rejoice in all of the gifts that God has given to you rather than living in constant disappointment and discontentment with the things that he hasn't. So here's just a little exercise for you over the next week, the next month, you decide. Every single day, write down 10 things that you're grateful for. No repeats. And it can be anything. It can be the miracle of being a Christian. It can be the community that God has placed around you. It can be your job. It can, it can be in and out Burger. I don't care what it is. Spend some time thinking about this. You've got to work against your heart. Now, here's the last thing. And honestly, this is the most important thing. Uh, you can do those first three things really well, but if you don't do the last, then you, here's what happens. You will end up making some changes in your behavior. But the power of money will not be broken in your heart. So what is it? Well, my, this is one of my favorite verses in the Bible, verse 23. It says that Jesus looked at him and loved him. And we just, we need to pause in that. that. You don't see that anywhere else in Mark's gospel. Jesus looked at him and loved him. Why was Jesus filled with love for this man? in this moment. I'll tell you what I think. I think Jesus looked at this man and he saw something of himself. Jesus was young. He was about 31 or 32 years old at this point. Jesus was a ruler, the ruler of heaven and earth. And Jesus knew what it was like to have incredible riches. He had all the riches of heaven but he gave it all away. He left everything and he came into a life of total poverty. Jesus was born in a feeding trough. Jesus lived his life as an itinerant, homeless preacher and healer. Jesus died poor and penniless on the cross and he was buried in a borrowed tomb. He was the ultimate rich young ruler. And why did he do this? Why did he give it all away? And here's why. Here's what the Christian gospel says. Because he looked at us. And he loved us. He looked at you. And he loved you. He looked at me. And he loved me. He saw all the lies that we believe about money. He saw all of our greed. He saw all of the power that money has over us. And he knew that the only way for that power to be broken was for him to be broken. And he saw our moral and spiritual bankruptcy. He saw that there was nothing that we could do to make ourselves right with God. And he knew that the only way for us to have true riches was for him to leave his. 2 Corinthians chapter 8, though he was rich, Yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, through his poverty, might become rich. Jesus is the true and ultimate 
rich young ruler. And the thing that will break the power of money in our lives, friends, is not greater willpower or more self-determination, but it is when money no longer is your God because you have found a better God, a more beautiful God, a God who will die for you. Your money will never die for you. You'll kill yourself and expend yourself your entire life trying to get it. It'll demand that you die for it. Jesus is the God who dies for us, and that's what this table is about. Jesus gave up everything. He gave up all of his other treasures because we were his greatest treasure. And the invitation of this passage and of this table is to live a life of radical generosity and sacrifice for the sake of Jesus and his kingdom. But it is also an invitation to see the way that Jesus has lived a life of radical sacrifice and generosity for us. And to the extent, to the extent that you see that, to the extent that you see he gave everything away for you, you'll be able to give some of what you have away for him. On the night in which he was betrayed, the Lord Jesus took bread, and after he'd given thanks, he broke it. He said, this is my body broken for you. Eat this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup and he blessed it, saying, this cup represents the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you and for many for the forgiveness of sins. Drink this in remembrance of me. The Apostle Paul tells us that as often as we eat this bread and drink this cup, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes again. Let's pray. Father, what riches we find at this table. What wealth is offered to us that we come as your sons and daughters who are deeply loved by you, who are sons and daughters of the king of the universe, the one who owns a, th a, a, a thousand cattle on a hill. God, would you give us grace this morning to see all that you have done for us as we are invited to this table? And would you fill us and would you meet us and would you renew us and would you encourage us and would you help us to believe that you have looked at us and loved us? I pray all this in Christ's name. Amen.